Future Transmissions listeners. Uh, so what you're about to hear uh, is something I'm just putting out as a little bonus. This is an episode of the Prehistory a Traveler's Guide podcast um, that I was a part of. It's a big panel interview with the author of the books, um, of the Meg books, that series of books, uh, as well as The Lock and a lot of other um, novels. Uh, Mr. Steve Alton, um, you know, The Meg was just turned into a big summer movie. And this started, uh, I was approached by one of the hosts of Prehistory, Greg Noneman, who uh, I um, met briefly at G-Fest, a uh, really nice guy. He had sent me some messages on Facebook because he listens to our show, um, just, you know, podcast nerd questions about recording programs and this and that, and he had said that he had just done an interview, uh, I think that previous week, with Steve Alton, and just due to technical difficulties, the audio was unusable. Um, and he said, hey, you know, if we can get Steve to agree to a second uh, uh, shot at this, would you like to be a part of it? And I said, of course. Sure, you know, I don't uh, get to um, talk to best-selling authors every day. And so... Uh, he invited me on, and um, it's me with uh, a big group of guys, uh, kind of a who's who. Um, there's the prehistory guys, and then um, we had a guy from Prehistoric Times. We had uh, some YouTubers, uh, the Omni Viewer from YouTube, um, and uh, we we spent some some time chatting with with Steve Alton, who was more than. Uh, generous with his time, you know, considering it's like, hey, you know, this is a second uh, take, basically. Um, but uh, really chill guy, um, very uh, honest and no nonsense, but but very cool, um, loves his fans. Um, but yeah, uh, so I hope you guys enjoy it. And um, if you're into prehistoric life, paleontology, things like that, um, check out uh, the uh, Prehistory, a Traveler's Guide podcast on YouTube. Um, they, they do some good work. So uh, here we are, um, a big gang of people interviewing the author of The Meg, Steve Alton. Enjoy. Okay, we are now live with the uh, September 6th edition of Prehistory, a Traveler's Guide podcast. I am your host, Greg Norman, and tonight we are getting a chance to do over an uh, interview that we could have gotten last week, but we had some unfortunate technical mishaps. Once again, we are welcoming back Meg Series writer Steve Alton. And on the panel today, I'm, I'll be introducing him one by one. Starting off with Prehistoric Times editor Mike Fredericks. Hey, everybody. Uh, next up, we'll be uh, coming back to join us is paleo artiste Joshua Valse. Hey, how's it going, everybody? And uh, also welcoming back to the to the show is longtime co longtime co-host and monster hunter Scott Mardis. Hello. And bringing also joining us for the party is good friend and fellow YouTuber and monster enthusiast. Ryan George Collins, a.k.a. The Omni Viewer. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am The Omni Viewer, and that's my usual greeting. Howdy. And, and also joining us, we have two special co-hosts with us. On one hand, we're bringing back a previous guest to join us on the panel. He is Ethan Pettis, the author of the ever-so-amazing novel, Primitive War. Howdy, y'all. And, uh, and we also have a bit of a crossover here of sorts. 
Uh, also joining us on tech support duty is Kyle Bird from the ever so beloved Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Hey, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to say a special thank you to Ethan and Kyle for uh, joining us tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. So uh, real real quick here before I hand the mic off to uh, Ethan here, want to give us a, just a quick summarized breakdown of early life and leading up to the publication of the uh, first book, Steve? Okay, well, the, uh, the desire to write a book about Megalodon was planted back when I was 15, and I had seen Jaws for the first time, read Bensley's book, and then I read everything that had to do with great white sharks. And uh, there was always a little blurb about Carcaron on Megalodon, but not much had really been written about it. Fast forward 20 years, I'm 35, um, looking to do something different with my life, um, was struggling in a job, and um, in August of 1995, an issue of Time Magazine came out that featured the Mariana Trench and hydrothermal vents, and when I read that, I started thinking about that, that giant shark that I read about when I was 15. And so I went to the library to see if it was feasible that these creatures could, in fact, still be alive, or especially in the deep waters. And uh, I came away thinking that this would not only make a good book, but make a good movie, too. And I decided I was going to write it. Because I worked uh, evenings, the only time I had to, to work on the book was uh, late at night, about 10 o'clock at night, till 3 in the morning, you know, weekends. And I did that for six months until I had a manuscript, and then was fortunate enough to find a literary agent, and um, that's how things got started. I can actually relate to a lot of that, especially the work in late nights in the early 20s. It's kind of the life I'm living right now, too. Well, it's, it's not easy, but if you want something, you got to make it happen. Oh, absolutely. I was going to ask you, when you started writing The Meg the first time, did you have any clear theme or motif that you wanted to explore and any kind of message you wanted to impart to your readers through your writing? The biggest thing for me was that when I had read Jaws, you know, I I couldn't wait to get from shark scene to shark scene, but there was a lot of filler in there. And, you know, not that that was a bad thing, but for me, I wanted to read a lot about, you know, the, the great white attacks. And so when I wrote Meg, I, I made sure there was a lot of action there, that it was, you know, multiple storylines going on that, that had action to it. Were there any literary techniques that you implemented in your first uh, ventures writing? Uh, things like uh, allegory or uh, morals hidden within the uh, narrative? Well, I suppose the name Jonas Taylor has some uh, meaning to it as far as Jonas being Jonah for the final you know, chapter of the book, but um, Taylor being taken from Ron and Valerie Taylor is a salute to them and all their work with Great Whites. Huh. I never knew that correlation. Uh, I caught on to the, uh, the Jonas, but not the Taylor. Again, uh, thanks a lot, Steve, for coming back for us. Uh, so a lot of these are going to be repeat questions from the last session. 
Uh, my first question is uh, your first book, The Meg, like we mentioned, is very Crichton-esque in its cues and in terms of the real world research about abyssal marine life and prehistoric sharks. Uh, my question is, do you keep up to date with the latest Meg research in paleontology, uh, most notable the preserved Megalodon verts that exist? Um, there's Meg skeletons that are being found in Peru. Uh, there's a new spine that's being researched by uh, a, re a paleontologist, Catalina Payamano. Uh, that's a good question. I, I have kept up for, for a while, but uh, not lately, to be honest. Um, my readers are pretty good about sending me stuff that comes out in the news, so I do keep up with that way. But, um, you know, a lot of that territory was covered in the first two books, and so uh, for the more recent books, you know, I, I'm moving forward in different areas. Okay, cool. And then uh, my second question is... Um, we actually just passed Memorial Day weekend. Uh, so you are actually, not only did you beat out uh, Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible in the first opening weekend, because your movies went head to head, uh, you didn't beat it over the Memorial Day weekend. I think you're still the number two spot. I think you earned another 22 million for the Meg movie. Um, how, do, how good does that feel after such a long struggle to get this movie made? <laughs> Well, I'd feel a lot better if the money was coming to me, but <laughs> that's true. I'm just I'm just the author who inspired the, the book that was made into a movie. Um, but I mean, it, it feels good. We have to keep going, uh, and uh, I'm hoping that May has long legs. <laughs> nice. So, all righty, that's cool. And then uh, my uh, my last question before I pass the mic: uh, with the bill, with the film being so far from the book, uh, for those who don't know out there in the internet, there is a book. We encourage you to read that book. Uh, um, uh, how do you see things going forward with the franchise in terms of Angel's origins? Uh, for those that haven't read the book, Angel is the offspring of the big female Meg. That's in the um, the next uh, book. Well, um, I've said this on a few interviews, and and um, I'm working on a a synopsis of each of the of the sequels right now, so it makes it easier for uh, screenwriters to understand what's next. Because unfortunately, most of Hollywood doesn't actually read the books, and I think that was a lot in the case of the Meg as well. Uh, it's very important that they, the producers and, and studio, whoever that's going to be, is not going to uh, try to reinvent the wheel. Uh, because if they do that, they're just going to keep um, churning out the same movie, like what happened with Jaws series. Uh, eventually, I only wrote the one book, of course, so there wasn't a, there was no choice. But with Meg, there's you know five sequels and a sixth one planned. And, and what's important is that the trench, the second book, it's a much darker story and it's a much more layered story. So there's a lot of things going on. Uh, it is important that they stay a lot closer to the storyline. Meg is a great movie and it's a great way to introduce the, the Megalodon as a character. 
I was one of the few that actually did own the original book, the first edition book. And um, while the movie was coming out during Shark Week this year, I was going to all the aquariums and the beach, rereading the book in preparation for the movie. So it, it was really cool for me to read this book and then finally watch the movie, the movie we've been waiting for for like decades. <laughs> that would be two decades and a little bit more. I'll go with some three questions from different categories here. I will choose a general question real quick here. My uh, first general question for you, Steve, will be, how do you decide on what prehistoric animals you want to feature in your books? And in particular, it comes to like more recent discoveries like Titanopole and the uh, Leviathan Melvele whale. Well, the trench introduced the first non-made creature as uh, chronosaurs. And then uh, book four, the House of Aquarium, really popped off the link with everything because that introduced the uh, the other territory beneath uh, the, uh, the Mariana Trench and the, the Panthalassa Sea, where we now had 320 million years worth of creatures. And uh, the more recent books, especially Generations, with Titanoboa. Um, you know, I mean, I had covered pretty much the entire gamut and of the major creatures, major prehistoric sea monsters. Titanoboa was out there and, and it seemed like it deserved a place in that uh, in that prehistoric history. So, plus a lot of fans had talked to me about Titanoboa in the years past. So it just seemed like a, a nice a nice follow-up. I'm just going to be like completely honest. Seeing Titanoboa in Generations was quite the surprise, and I actually liked how you built up the snake's grand entrance towards the end of Generations, which I am not going to spoil for those of us that are uh, listening to this. <laughs> so my second general question is relates to the one I just mentioned here. It's about the behavior in the research. How do you go about coming up with the uh, behavior of your myriad prehistoric animals in the books? Do you try to strive for scientific accuracy, and have you consulted experts when you are doing your uh, writing for the books? No, I don't really consult experts. I mean, I have read, uh, you know, a lot of scientific journals and things like that on some of these creatures, so I'm not going into it blind. But, um, you know, with Megalodon, I've always... uh, sort of uh, extrapolated from the great white sharks anatomy and, and behavior. The megalodons in the in the series, whether it's Angel, whether it's uh, the first one from the first book, their behavior sort of identifies them as individuals. Uh, you know, a megalodon like Bella, who's, you know, very violent creature like her mother, uh, will be different than her companion sister, Lizzie, who is was sort of the brains behind that. So, you know, I try to give them all personalities. The, the new Megalodon and Generations has its own personality as well. And um, because I think that's more, that's more important for the reader as opposed to uh, what, what the behaviors of Megalodon, not that we would ever know what their behavior would be. All righty then. Let's see. I got a bunch of questions submitted by my people, so I think skipping over some of the repeats, let's start with this one. What do you love the most about your Meg line of novels? I love that uh, it created 
a culture of makeheads that have become very loyal readers of mine. Uh, I love that the books are being read in schools and are popular in teens. And I love that um, I'm hoping that we have some movies coming out. So here's an interesting one. If you had the money to make a sequel to The Meg, the movie, how would you handle it? And would you make it darker? Or would you adapt certain storylines from the original novels? Or just if you had free range to make the movie however you wanted, I guess. Well, I sort of answered that with the question about the trench. Um, I think it's important that the next movie... See, the, the, the first Meg movie was great in that it established a lot of things where the creatures came from about... It didn't really go into too much detail about how the hydrothermal vents were creating this tropical level at the bottom of the, of the trench, but um, that, we can get into that more in a second one. But what's important is that the tone was right but the tone in the second one's got to be darker. Uh, it's got to take itself more seriously. It's got to establish certain things about the science behind uh, why the Mariana Trench is, is become a tropical oasis for extinct prehistoric life. And uh, it's got to establish Angel. I mean, she's the big character in the series. And she carries the series for you know four books or three books, so... Um, you know, having her, it's, it's, you know, chasing a megalodon across the Pacific is one thing, but when you've got one locked up in a, in, in a lagoon, a man-made lagoon, that's pretty cool. I mean, that, that and she's got a, she's got a nasty temper. Mm. So, um, I think she, her character has to be established. Okay. Uh, and last one for this round. This should be an interesting one. Have you ever found yourself writing something that seems like a good idea in theory, but yet at first when writing, can't seem to let yourself enjoy? Can't let myself enjoy. Um, I'm not sure. I guess like, you ever, have you ever had an idea that sounded great, but when you started writing it down, it just either wasn't coming together, or you suddenly realized, what the heck was I thinking, or something to that effect? Yeah, I mean, I, I've gotten, I got started on one book, I wrote about 150 pages of it, and it was a vampire story that took place in Africa, and um, had sort of a different angle to it. And I, I just didn't know where it was going, so I put it aside. Now I hope to get back to it one day, but um, because the writing is good, and and the first part of it is pretty good, but it didn't it didn't take off like I thought it would. And the reason was is because I, I didn't know where it was going. And I normally don't start writing until I know the ending of a book, but in this case, I was still contemplating it. That does sound like an interesting idea. I've got to say, hope that I hope you have more luck picking that up in the future. Okay, I'll pass the baton off to Kyle Bird. All right. Uh, well, Steve. Um, yeah, I, I to circle back to the movie a little bit. Um, you know, congratulations on it finally being a thing. Um, and uh, I was just wondering, um, were you ever able to visit the set or? Or were you mostly kind of just hands off? I was invited, but uh, 
I would have had to pay my own way, and I wasn't about to do that to go to New Zealand or China. My daughter did go uh, with a friend of hers, and uh, they gave her an extra part in the movie, but um, not that I've, I've seen the movie three times and still haven't seen my daughter. <laughs> so she could be on the cutting room floor someplace. Yeah. But uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's not an easy trip for me because I have Parkinson's, so... Mm-hmm. Even if they had paid for it, I wouldn't have gone at that point. Yeah. Hopefully, it's done. Um, well, speaking of shark movies, um, you know, uh, obviously, you mentioned Jaws, you know, in the book and the movie, but uh, there is a weird, like, it, the shark, they call it shark exploitation, is like a subgenre of B movie now. Do you, do you ever find yourself just turning on the sci fi channel or something and watching a shark movie? Or, I mean, is that something that you ever indulge in at all? Not the stupid ones. <laughs> There's a lot of those, I know. Yeah, you know, the shark natives, I don't consider them shark movies. I consider them just, you know, ridiculous mm-hmm. comedy. But, um, I did enjoy the shallows, and I and I I did enjoy uh, uh, what was it called? Forty-seven meters down. Is that forty meters? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I haven't caught that one, but I I really like the shallows too. Um, and then yeah, just to um, kind of stick on that course a little bit. Um, you've talked a lot about Jaws, and you mentioned it. Uh, earlier, and obviously it made a huge impact on you um, when you were younger, and geez, a whole generation of people, but for you specifically, what was it about um, the book and or the movie that spoke to you that made you say like, hey, this might be something I want to do. This might be um, territory or subject matter that I might want to creatively explore. Nothing at the time uh, gave me a clue that I would be writing shark books at one point in my life, but um, it was, you know, I write things, I write about the stories that I'd like to read. And so, you know, I did like to read a lot about the sharks. Um, as far as Jaws in particular, the book, the attack scenes, uh, you know, those were the highlights for me. Not as much as the other things in the book, but uh, putting three different characters out on a boat that's being attacked by a creature is, uh, you know, a, a suspenseful idea. So I, I did want to follow that once once I did start writing. Yeah, Steven Spielberg left out a lot of the uh, subplots from the Jaws novel, specifically the... Uh, the adultery and whatnot between the main character and his wife and the scientist. Oh, yeah. Probably didn't fit Spielberg's uh, vision. Well, it was, it was filler in the book. But for the movie, it wasn't necessary. Oh, yeah. In the book, it's like the first two-thirds of it as well. I was actually kind of shocked the first time I read it. Peter Bench was still a fantastic author, though. All right, I think I will... Let's Scott delve into some cryptozoology here with the lock. We're going to be uh, talking about the uh, tooth. Yep. Okay, so here's what I got wrote. The controversial Loch Ness tooth making the rounds on the internet in 2004-2005 has been intimately linked with the subject matter 
of your Loch Ness Monster novel as well as the giant eel research of a mutual friend, William McDonald. The mysterious disappearance of the actual object itself, which prevents scientific analysis to determine its nature and origin, has led to accusations that the object is possibly manufactured as a publicity stunt to promote the book or that it was not a tooth in actuality, but possibly a deer antler or a crustacean leg. How did this object and the story of its provenance come to your attention initially? Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, I had been contacted by these uh, two students, and uh, what they were telling me was pretty amazing story. But they had video, and uh, the the tooth in the video matched the tooth in the in the book of the creature that we had used, which, as you said, came from Bill McDonald's research. Um, I never met these guys. I had only spoken to him once. Um, my publisher at the time put out a $10,000 reward for any information leading to the, uh, the recovery of the tube, which, which according to these guys was confiscated by uh, the, uh, the wildlife officer that came across the dead deer. Um, you know, as far as a publicity stunt, yeah, that's a pretty far way to go. You have to, because the deer was cut in half. Like, like it had been bit in half. So, I mean, if you think about this, and I've never been to Scotland, I've never been to Europe or England. Um, you have to get a deer carcass. You have to cut the thing open. You have to plant it on the side. You then have to get these guys to find it. And then you'd have to pull something out of its ribcage that looked like a tooth. Now, why would an antler be lodged into the deer? I mean, did another maniac deer kill this other deer and then proceed to be a cannibal and eat it? It sure sounds like a publicity stunt to a certain effect. So when you start examining what would be needed for someone that was working in conjunction with the publicity of my book, to pull it off. Well, according to William, where you get that deer? met with somebody at the Gatwick Airport and was shown photographs. So evidently the tooth was already gone before he even got involved. That's what he told me. Well, Bill was had been over there in the winter of that year. I forget if it was 2004. I think it was 2004 he went over there because um, they had found some tracks along the uh, – the muddy embankment that was looked like a giant eel had created them. He wasn't over there in the spring or summer or whatever these, these two uh, college students were over there. He wasn't over there then. So um, the tooth was something that came out, I think, in the, I, I think it was the spring or summer of 2000. I can't remember. Well, I also spoke to Brandon Kill, who built the giant eel head model. He told me he was given a brass model of the tooth to work with. Yeah, that, that brass model was created by a guy named Bill Raby, who's a jeweler. And I had I commissioned him to create that brass model 
so that we could give it to Brandon and he would have something to go off. So what are you inclined at this point to think the object probably was, the original object? Well, if you, if you look at eels and um, they actually captured a big eel and, and the guy who captured it was paid 10 grand uh, and that was sent to Brandon. If you look at the an eel's mouth, there's there's teeth that go along the side, but there's teeth that there's actually a row of barbed teeth that run right down their throats. So it sort of creates like a barbed hook effect when it bites into its prey, and that's where the tooth came from. That's what the experts say. Yeah, they're called vomerine teeth. My last question is. Do you allow for the possibility that perhaps both you and William could have been the victims of an elaborate hoax? Well, I wrote a book of fiction. How was I a victim of an elaborate hoax? <laughs> I mean, just, just the tooth part, you know? The well, I mean, tooth it, how, did, how did the tooth help me? I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, somebody could have hoaxed the two of you somehow. But it would have been, as you pointed out earlier, it would have been an elaborate thing to put together initially. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know how to go about doing that. I mean, how do you, where do you get a deer from? <laughs> I mean, how do you find a dead deer? Do you, I mean, they just drop dead of a heart attack, and then how do you find them? And then, and then how do you cut it up? You could kill one. Oh, well, all right, well, how do you get one to kill? I mean, well, there are deer in the forest around Loch Ness. But, but, I mean, how do you plan that kind of activity? Do you, do you send out a bunch of guys with guns or bows and, and say, get the deer and then go kill it and then go cut it up, make it look like it was ravaged by the Loch Ness monster? I actually have a copy of the video where they pull the tooth out of the carcass. It's been yes. placed on the Internet for some time. Yeah, I've seen it. It's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Well, that's that's about all I had to ask you, and thank you for answering my questions. Uh, my pleasure. Okay, uh, the Periostark Times editor will now take the stage real quick here. Steve, thanks so much again for uh, doing this, and congratulations on... Uh, not only how well the movie's doing, but all your um, how well all your novels have been doing too. It's it's fantastic. I'm so happy for you. How happy are you? Sorry. How happy are you with the the movie? I mean, a lot of the parts are are different. Um, and how much input did you have? Uh, as far as input, uh, when we got the rights back from New Line Cinema, Bell Avery, the producer, and I, we wrote our own script. And she used that to search and resource the money that was needed, the $150 million to get the movie started. And uh, she got that by working with Gravity Pictures. Um, once that was done, that was as far as I got, as far as having input, other than having input directly through Bell Avery. The, um, as far as what I thought about the movie, I thought it was a great first movie, and they got a lot of it right. And they got the cast and the characters and, and the, the tone and the shark right, which was the most important thing I was concerned about. Because so many of the other people who were involved with the years were trying to reinvent the wheel as far as what the shark looked like. And I think recently uh, 
Bloody Disgusting News had put out pictures that Nick Nunziata had supplied to them of the maquette that Jan Devon had created, which I hated. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it looked like this shark out of Hellboy. And that's not what a Megalodon looked like. So, you know, that, that was my biggest concern. If New Line had made the movie, I think it would have been one and done. Did um, Guillermo del Toro, was he on board for a short amount of time at some point, too? I- he was attached to, uh, what happened was, um, we'd gotten the rights back to the movie in, they were first, they were initially uh, optioned by Hollywood Pictures, which is part of Disney. And then after about a year and a half, the, uh, the head of the studio was fired, and so the project went into turnaround. And um, I got the rights reverted back. And then nothing happened for a few years. And then I talked to a friend, Nick Nunziata, who was the founder of Chud.com, Cinematic Happenings Under Development. And once he found out that I had the rights back, he took it to Guillermo del Toro and Jan Devon. Uh, not Jan Devon, uh, Lloyd Levin, who was the producer. And uh, we met in Hollywood, and uh, they decided that they wanted to move forward with it so they had me write a script which I want to say attached Jan we worked on it together Jan's, Jan was a really good guy you know, he was very into the movie so you know I, I have no doubt that it would have been a good movie for as a director but what happened was is, is um, there were a lot of producers attached who were getting a lot of money for doing nothing specifically Lloyd's partner uh whose name I can't remember right now. Um, he was a big-time producer, but he never showed up to a single meeting. But he was taking, he was taking a lot of points off the back end. So we, we sort of went into it with New Line that there were too many cooks in the kitchen who were getting a lot of money for doing nothing. <laughs> and that, and Jan, the, the, the production team basically became very divided and weren't speaking to each other. And there was no, not anyone in charge. So it was Jan and Shane Slerner, the screenwriter, versus um, Lloyd Levin and Guillermo and Nick. Guillermo eventually stepped away from it, which was a smart move because it wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> Lloyd was working on other movies. You had the, um, you know, the, the animals were running the zoo, and that's never <laughs> the situation. And then you had the um, the producers at New Line, and they they had made a fatal mistake. Um, the the uh, gentleman who was in charge of the foreign rights, I guess New Line had had a string of bad movies come out that lost a lot of money for the foreign distributors, and so they all the foreign distributors loved Meg and won that movie, and so he discounted it to them. And by underselling the foreign rights, he made it impossible for them to get co-financing. So the movie was dead on arrival. Plus, Shane's script was just horrible. It's like Moby Dick for a shark. And so the best, <laughs> the best thing that could have happened happened, which was they decided not to do the movie. And that gave the rights back to me. Yeah, I, I know you've been going through hell, first with the books, then with the movie and it's just so nice that it's finally been made right i mean good grief and i really enjoyed it too and of course 
Jason was fantastic, and I understand you're very happy with him in the lead. And I, I think I asked you before if you got to go to the set, and you said no, but your your um, your daughter did, right? Yes, did. And she got to meet him, right? Yeah, we've got a picture of her, the two of them standing together. And he was he was very nice and and um, very cordial, and I really wanted to see him out in Hollywood, but um, we were in two different places, I guess, on the night of the premiere, and uh, I never had a chance to meet him. I did. Bell told me that after the movie, the first thing she said he said to her was, "Did Steve like it?" Mm. That meant a lot to me. Absolutely, you'll meet him someday. I'm I'm positive. <laughs> Thanks so much, Steve. I'll, I'll pass on the baton. Thank you. Thank you. It looked like Jason uh, Sam was having the time of his life the entire time he was on camera. I'm sure he, he loved seeing. He was himself. great. He, he was great. And um, you know, the the second movie that was you know, Knockwood will happen. You know, I had made a prediction that Meg was going to be the number one movie. And I wasn't doing it as a bragging thing. I was doing it based upon my 22 years of contact with, with Meg Enthusiasts. And I knew that they would come out in force. Uh, but the, the trench is, a, is actually a much better story and a much darker one. And, and will give Jason, you know, a lot of rope to play with as far as his character. And uh, I think as good as the, the Meg is doing right now, and it is doing well. The trench will do twice as well. I'm telling you, you guys hear it. I'm, I'm announcing it on your show. So save this as an archive. And I hope I'm around to see it. But the trench will do twice as the, the box office that the Meg is doing because it's that much bigger of a story if they do it right, which I hope they do. <laughs> so. Uh, I have a couple questions, but they pertain directly to your writing process. Uh, what continues to fuel your creativity? What is currently inspiring you to write? I have a shitload of bills. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I guess when you get up to your level of publishing as many books as you have under your belt, I guess that's a good inspiration. Well, that, uh, the, past, the past books don't inspire me as much as um, my fans inspire me. But uh, you know, I'm I'm not at a point where I'm independently wealthy. I'm I'm in debt, and I need to write and I need to work. And uh, I'm doing a lot of things right now. But uh, you know, I need to get on with the next book soon. Uh, but I did want to mention one thing because we were talking about the lock. Uh, I announced in my newsletter, which came out a couple of days ago that I was going to, in order for me to write Meg 7, Purgatory, as my next book, I need to have another book come out before that. And so I have the rights to the hardback of The Lock. So what I'm going to do is put out a special edition of The Lock, the collector's edition in hardback, just available, not available in stores or not available on Amazon, but like Generations, available only on my website. And that's going to be debuted on October 1st. We we're going to take pre-orders for 15 days and then stop, shut it down. And only those people who order during those 15-day period will ever have the book. And they'll get it in time for Christmas. But um, 
Bill McDonald had written a book on the, the evidence regarding the Loch Ness Monster that I had used in um, my storyline. And I think, and I had worked on the book with him and it features the tooth information. And I think if I can find that book, I'm going to put it in the back of the, the, the lock as a special bonus for readers. I can't so wait to get a copy. I want to know what stuff. inspired me. You just inspired me to do that. <laughs> well, if you uh, need additional inspiration, I'm uh, <laughs> working on books as well. I don't want to eat up too much of your time. Uh, I'll just ask one more question. Uh, what do you want your legacy as a writer to be? Uh, what do you want your writing to be remembered for? And what do you want to be remembered for as a writer? I think that I would like to be remembered for someone who inspired other readers to read, uh, especially teens in schools. I'd like to be remembered as writing books that were page turners and were, were faction fiction mixed with fact. Just, you know, somebody who's there who had a, a good relationship with the readers who looked out for them as like friends because that's important to me. I think that's a great answer and I think you have a great understanding of what it means to be a creator in modern times because a lot of people uh, pursue writing to fulfill ego in some way and it's just refreshing to hear that a successful author wants to be seen as you know uh comrade, uh, ally, somebody that continues to inspire and motivate. Hello. And, uh, on behalf of everyone on the panel, we likewise will pre-order cardback copies of The Lock when, when it comes possible to do so in October. Absolutely. Of course. You know, uh, William basically got lynched by this guy named Rob McConnell on his show. <clears throat> Accused him of doing a hoax and said it would, could be nothing but a deer animal. I felt really sorry for William about that. Well, I've been on Rob McConnell's show, and he could be a bit of a dick. Tell <laughs> <laughs> uh, us how you really feel, though. I'm going to swing it back. Maybe it was more of a deer dick than a deer antler. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 no. being a female deer must be horrible if that's the case. Well, sharks have the male sharks have a barbed um, clasp, so maybe deers do too. <laughs> I'm not going to look and see for myself. So, <laughs> as a scientist, I find this all very interesting. <laughs> so, um, all right, uh, Greg, am I good to go? Yes, you are, Joshua. Okay, so, um, Steve, going back to, speaking of science and going back to research, uh, one of the interesting things I read in the first book, and uh, it was excluded from the movie, but it was an interesting detail. Uh, you mentioned that Jonas uh, brings up make teeth that are dated to be younger uh, that were found in the Mariana Trench. Uh, was this based off real research and actual findings? Yeah, uh, the HMS Challenger, which which I think set sail in, in the 1870s, um, had uh, had uh, dredged the Mariana Trench seafloor, and uh, they dredged up megalodon teeth. 
Wow, that's really cool. And was that uh, was that covered by like Nat Geo or Discovery or? Um, I can't say if it was or not, but it's, it's definitely out there. If you look up HMS Challenger and follow, okay. the, follow their exploits, they did dredge up Megalodon. Okay, cool. All right. It's so the HMS Challenger. And then, uh, you, you went on record. You told us to record this, that the trench is going to be double the box office. Uh, <laughs> so we're, 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 we're making record of that. Um, in the movie, there were actually some Easter eggs toward the other animals found in your books, um, including the one that's included in the trench. Uh, there was a size comparison chart when, when they first discovered the giant shark back at the research base. And in that chart, there's a Kronosaurus and a donkey or a Dunkleosteus. Uh, did you have any input with these Easter eggs? No, I had no input on that. that. I mean, they just happened to use that chart. I've seen that chart before, so um, I guess just I, I don't I don't think that was their intention. I I suspect that they had no idea that Kronosaurs are in the trench yet. Oh, nice! So it's just a lucky break. I mean, it's a hell of a lucky break. <laughs> so, all right, that's cool. And then um, my final question before I pass the mic: uh, What was your favorite moment in the film? Uh, or the moment you thought best captured the spirit of your book series. Uh, for me, it was the scene where Jonas had to swim out alone to tag the Meg. And um, he's singing uh, Just Keep Swimming, which I don't know if that was a, a subtle call to Disney <laughs> when they had the rights. <laughs> I think it was a, a, a thank you to uh, Finding Nemo. Yeah. So what was your, uh, what was your favorite moment of the movie? Uh, I like when they uh, they submerged be below the hydrothermal plume. Uh, they didn't give it a great explanation, but they did. I thought that was pretty cool. Okay, so when they're like when they're going through the hydrothermal plume. Yeah, I don't think that the um, I mean Nakeheads would understand it, but I don't think the common movie girl would understand that 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 plume was a, is was a layer of insulation created by the hydrothermal vents that you have this superheated 700 degree Fahrenheit mineral water that is rising and, and coagulates at the plume and so it's created this you know layer of insulation that keeps the warmth in and keeps the, the creatures alive Wow. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty cool. I remember when I read the uh, the Meg, it was kind of my first um, exposure to the Mariana Trench in this, like, closet bubble environment. It's a so. really fascinating way to take the lost world premise in literature and apply it to the ocean. A lot of people just look at the ocean as one great lost world without actually, like, diving deeper into it. No pun intended. <laughs> I'm all for the puns. <laughs> so alrighty I'm, I'm, uh, I'm good to go Greg if you want to pass the mic okay here I think I'm ready to have another uh, go at here before I start with my round of questions since we had a bit of a storm messing around when I was asking the questions earlier if we could perhaps get a recap about how you started to come up with giving the individual sharks later on in the series their unique personalities like Bill and Lizzie's uh, symbiotic relationship and uh, Luna's you know, quirks like her spy hopping in. This is going to be kind of a spoiler where she kills the Leopardon pup and drags the carcass out of the water 
it displays it to them as if like in triumph like i, I can see now the movie uh predator okay going from there i was curious to get also a recap about uh shark training okay uh what you want me to do first the personalities of the sharks well, let's start with the shark train, because that sequence with Luna and David was actually very fascinating, to say the least. Yeah, um, you know, each of the each of the makes have had their own personalities, and and um, the um, you know, starting with Angel, uh, I mean, she's just nasty, and uh, but you know, the uh, characters have different relationships with her. Jonas has sort of a, a love-hate relationship with her. And David, when he, you know, enters the series, uh, he loves her. I mean, he it's his shark. But more important, the, the sisters, Bella and Lizzie, are his sharks. Uh, you know, he was there from their birth, and, and he took care of them. And even though they're nasty creatures, there's an affinity that he has toward them, sort of like pets. Now, Luna is going to take that a bit further because um, uh, he's going he's going outside the envelope to, to work with her. And, you know, sharks can be trained. The baby has trained sharks. And um, so I'm not exactly sure where their relationship is going to go, uh, but we'll see. Yeah, like I, like I said, that's a very uh, cool sequence, and that is based off of real research and so forth. But my first legit question here will be from Hell's Aquarium, and it concerns the uh, Laya Pluridon versus Angel battle down in the Pantalassa. Did you look towards how to look towards uh, real animal fights for the sort of choreography concerning Angel and the Laya Pluridon? Uh, no, I just sort of imagine where it would go. I mean, Angel was her, the apex predator and, and live Florida was just so much bigger than a normal live Florida because of the effects of inhabiting this heart of the um, Panthalassus Sea where things just got bigger as defense mechanisms over the eons. Uh, but, uh, you know, they were pretty evenly matched and uh, I don't want to give too much away on it, but um, uh and of course, we have Luna's match. My second question will jump over to the follow-up to Hell's Aquarium, Night Stalkers. The whole, one of the overall one of the overall plots for Night Stalkers considers concerns David Taylor's revenge quest against the uh, Leah Pluridon. Some reviewers have compared this to the overall motif from Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Did the Melville novel have any sort of influence over that aspect of the uh, Night Stalkers plot? With actually uh, the Moby Dick uh, Ahab sort of uh, revenge thing had more to do in the trench with Jonas because he wasn't sure if he wanted to kill her angel after she escaped or, or capture her. Um, but with David, yeah, I mean, definitely there was, was definitely an Ahab factor involved. Um, I wasn't sure how it was quite going to end until the end in Night Stalkers. Um, but it sort of all worked out. I think of my third question before I pass the mic off will be, where'd you get the idea to have Angel's litter being able to start reproducing through Parthenogenesis? 
This has been confirmed to be in three extant species of shark. Bonnet heads, black tips, and zebra shark are also being reported in other species of shark. Yeah, hammerheads too. Uh, when I, when I, you know, someone had asked a question about keeping up with the research with sharks and megalodons, but that was one of the things that I did definitely keep up with them when I read about that. It just makes it, it's a lot more efficient for nature to just clone females, especially if the sharks are uh, being threatened and, uh, you know, there's not that many megalodons even in the series around, so that made it made more sense to me, and it was also kind of scarier to think that Angel would clone itself. No, the only downside scientifically to parthenogenesis reproduction is the uh, reduction of genetic diversity, which could lead certain species vulnerable to disease and so forth. <laughs> well, there's a lot of species that use it other than sharks, so it must not be that big of a problem because. Um, I think a lot of insects use it too, and there's plenty of them around. Okay, here, before we move on here, we gotta give uh, Ethan a send off here. Yeah, I gotta run back to the uh, midnight life, even though it's only like 7 o'clock here. It was a pleasure talking to you, Steve, and it was a pleasure uh, being on board, Greg. Uh, hope everybody enjoys the rest of their day. And I hope I can have the opportunity to talk to you all again. Goodbye, Ethan. Have you Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. I'll have you on. I'll have you on the next episode of the show, Ethan, to discuss the latest in primitive war happenings. <laughs> oh boy, I can't wait. Cowbird is now up on base to bat. All right. Um, I uh, understand that when you um. Did the later version of the Meg, you made some changes, um, such as how the Meg is killed is changed, and also um, the scene with the T-Rex the at the beginning is um, a simulation. What, what was the reason behind, um, you know, deciding to make those changes? Well, the, 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 what you just mentioned about the T-Rex uh, wasn't scientifically accurate, so by uh, making it into basically a, a video that played for uh, Jonas's audience uh, I was able to allow the scene to take place while justifying why it was there in the first place uh, regarding the um, the slight alteration in the ending of the of the two books um, I wanted to ground it a little bit more in reality uh, the first one was exciting and um, but probably not very feasible and so I wanted to make it something that would be more feasible. Okay, understandable. Um, real quick, I, I do want to circle back to um, the lock. And I know that you mentioned talking to cryptozoologists and things like that, but um, are, you a, are you an actual believer in the Loch Ness Monster or any other specific cryptid creatures? What's interesting is that when I was first asked by my old manager to um to write the lock um i turned it down because i was not a fan of that crypto duology and uh it wasn't until i spoke to bill mcdonald and got his take on it um that uh i really i saw a purpose for the novel which was to separate the science from the mythology 
because in Scotland, in, in Inverness, or not in Inverness, in Drum the Drocket and the Highlands, it's it's a source of income. Um, you know, it's a, it's a major tourist attraction. And so they play up this mythology. But for Zachary Wallace, the lead character in the book, he has to cut through that, you know, mythology to get to the real science to determine what it is that's causing these problems in Loch Ness, causing these attacks. And then there's a scientific reason for it that makes sense. Okay. Um, and then uh, I do want to have a uh, kind of an industry question that I was just curious for your take on, um, because I know, you know, some recent stuff has uh, been released as ebooks digitally um, and bookstores closing down and print media, you know, kind of uh, dwindling a little bit. Um, what's your take on, you know, digital publishing versus print publishing? And um, if there's any kind of pros and cons to, to each that, that you might um, have an opinion on. I think it's great that people have the opportunity to get self-published um at the same time um there's an awful lot of stuff out there that's you know subpar mm-hmm. uh, but it's up to it's up to the buyers you know decision what they want to read so there's i think it's a good thing uh i'm not as happy with amazon's imprint on the publishing industry um, I think it's, you know, I was a big fan of Borders and Walden Books and D. Dalton and Barnes Noble and Books a Million. And, um, you know, the fact that their livelihoods are being threatened by a monopoly um, is concerning to me as an author, as it should be to all authors. Yeah, luckily I still have a few Barnes and Nobles uh, around me, but yeah, I remember when all those big name bookstores were closing and yeah it was it was a bummer i will shall let the omni viewer go next let's do a simple one that i that i had submitted what's your favorite horror film oh boy uh favorite horror film i have to think about that um (laughs) what horror film scared you the most I think when I was younger, I, I saw the TV movie, um, what was it? Um, Trilogy of Terror? No, no, no. Um, I want to say Night Stalker. Was it Col- Col- Kolchak the Night Stalker was uh, yeah, on TV? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, not the series, but the first one with the vampire guy. Mm-hmm. Yep. And very well done. Yeah, those are good. Good choice. Here's, here's one that could be interesting. There's a lot of talk about the first book, The Trench and whatnot. So I had one person ask, what was your motivation slash inspiration for writing your third book, aside from watching some reality TV, that is? The, uh, there was lots of time between the second and third book. Uh, Meg 1 and 2 came out back to back, though it was never intended to do that. What happened was Domain was supposed to be the second book, but I had a suit to get the rights back on Double Day when they had canceled the book uh, two weeks before I was supposed to get paid. Mm. And so that forced me to go back to Meg series and, and get something out there immediately because I was drowning in debt. And um, so 
uh, the the lapse of time between two and three was um, I think it was about uh, I want to say five or six years and uh, Primal Waters was uh, was very much involved with the things that were going on with me personally as far as my relationship with my stepchildren at the time who were both teens and going through some rough times and Jonas and his kids which were introduced into the storyline so Primal Waters sort of um, is, a, is a different type of story as compared to books 2, 4, 5 and 6 which are and 7 which take us down into the Pantolasis Sea and uh, I'm finding I actually had to go back and read all of my books um, I've been reading them over the last couple of weeks because I'm developing a uh, a detailed synopsis of each of the books for the screenwriters if, if there's interest in a, in a sequel from make. Hmm. And I'm enjoying them, which is good. I'll just go for another semi-silly one. <laughs> Who would, which one would win in a fight between the Meg and the Loch Ness Monster? I'm assuming the ones from the respective books. I think when faced against Angel, the the uh, Loch Ness monster is sushi. <laughs> yeah. I would right. say I would say seconded on that, and also the uh, the Queen Meg from Generations that ate that shark. The Meg's even the Meg that's even larger than Angel that's revealed in Panthalassa. She would tear Nessie a new one too. Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting uh, shark that I'm going to have to look into developing a little bit. Cause she is. That's she's pretty nasty. Yeah, you don't get much of her, but the little you do get of the queen, it makes you want to have well more of that shark. I hope she gets a good star role in Purgatory alongside the uh, Titanoboa Pantalasic. Okay, I'll pass it to Mike then. Okay, Steve, I've got three short ones here for you, but um, uh, you said between Loch Ness and Meg, how about the um, Jurassic World Mosasaur and Meg. Well, that was more of a, uh, a closer battle, but um, I don't think there's any doubt that Megalodon is a, is a lot bigger and tougher and nastier than Mosasaur. And how'd you feel about them feeding it great white sharks? <laughs> kind of ridiculous. <laughs> you know, if you're gonna, as I said in our last interview, if you're going to... Um, the emosis or you want to give it you know a fatty source of food like a whale oh yeah abundant but why would you give it a great white shark which is a protected species and pretty damn hard to capture anyway <laughs> yeah. um, you said earlier that um, you, you really don't consult too much too many scientists when you write your books and I understand um, your books are, you know, fiction, although you try to be scientifically accurate as possible. Um, I know paleo artists that they, they want to write a, a book with their art in it, of course, but the publishers insist on them bringing in a scientist whenever they do it. But you haven't run into that at all? Is it, I guess, different with fiction than with uh, art books? Yeah, it's, I'm sure it's a lot different. And last of all, um, after all the wreckage and death in your books, are you glad that uh, Megalodons are extinct, or are they? 
<laughs> well, I'm not going to go down the Mariana Trench and try to prove they're not. Let's put it that way. We'll leave that to um, James Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Okay, here. Another follow-up to uh, Hell's Aquarium. This is part one. Did studying the behavior of great white sharks in any way inspire the uh, personality traits of Angel's litter, and also in particular the uh, symbiotic nature of Bella and Lizzie's bond? Uh, I don't think any research inspired that. I think that was more or less a result of Angel's disposition and the fact that she was, you know, and, and this we I go into this more in generations. Um, that that megalodons were not necessarily bad parents or bad females were bad mothers. It was more or less uh, angels living in a very isolated terrain uh, in the lagoon where she was locked up that uh, made the pups a threat to her because she had no concept of how uh, how food worked in, in her lagoon so the fact that it was limited made them a threat and the fact that they were getting bigger made them a threat as well um, with Lissy and, and Bella the fact that their mother was such a, a dominant presence in that habitat uh, they learned they had a symbiotic relationship as a defense mechanism. And as did the runs, the three other smaller megs that came from the um, angels' um, self-fertilization, so internal fertilization. So uh, they were going to get big as well. And so I kind of explain that in generations that uh, Lissy and Noah had to kill them while they were younger and smaller because they knew that they were going to be a threat because there were three of them and two of the sisters. So grouping all those creatures in one small, refined, confined habitat uh, forced them to kill each other. It was like, I think I describe it as um, rival gangs in a yard, in a prison yard. You know, it's survival. And this also relates to a question I just thought about for Nice Stalkers. Bill and Lizzie are, all, are shown throughout that book going out of their way to decimate orca pods in the Salish uh, Sea. And I believe this had to do with basically predators eliminating the uh, competition. You want to give us some further elaboration as to how you uh, came about with those uh, sequences with Bill and Lizzie tearing through the orcas? Is there some sort of grudge you have against those animals, or is it just there for the story's sake? <laughs> Well, it's there for the story's sake as far as that the Salish Sea had, was designated as Lizzie and Bella's breeding ground and, and their future breeding ground for their pups. So, you know, the national enemy in the Salish Sea is going to be killer whales, uh, which may have had something to do with Megalodon's extinction in the first place. That uh, a, meg, a meg versus a killer whale is not much of a match, but a meg versus... 10 or 20 kilo whales, that's a little bit different. So, uh, Lissy and Bella basically were there to eliminate the pups' challenges. So, yeah, that's uh, pretty cool. 
little sequence there. I will go with another one from Mech Generation. It's about it's a plot point concerning the Panthalasa creatures. In this book, we find out that some of the Panthalasa marine life have a special cancer-fighting enzyme in their livers, which is a major uh, plot point later on. Could you tell us more about this uh, aspect of the plot? You know, I had to have a substantial reason to get Jonas and Terry uh, back into the uh, Panthalasa. And so the, the first part of the book involving Terry's uh, medical condition leads to them going back down there. So will this also factor into some of the uh, plot for uh, Purgatory? I think most of that's established, but yeah, it'll come back around a little bit. Um, Alright, so I know, um, from what I understand, Purgatory is um, going to be you know, your your last book in the series. Um, is there a reason why you decided to stop right there? And what made you feel like, you know what, this is where we're going to cap it off? I actually felt that about generations, that that would be it. Um, but as I was writing the book and uh, getting into the final act and, and then had came up with an alternative final act, uh, I decided that we'd go on for one more. But, you know, I don't want this, I don't, I want each book to be a little bit better than the last one. We're certainly on par with the last one. I don't want to, you know, quote unquote, jump the shark with the series uh, because I'm running out of ideas. And, you know, I, I don't want to say that it's definitely going to be my last one because if I come up with something that's fresh, then I have no problem with continuing the series. But if I'm really struggling to come up with storyline, then there's no reason to continue the series. But I'm not there yet. I won't know until I really get into uh, purgatory. Mm -hmm. Obviously, with introducing so many other giant creatures and having um, them fight each other, essentially, um, is that informed by um, anything else that you might be into, aside from just general... Um, paleontology and animal behavior like um monster movies godzilla or king kong or um did you grow up watching any anything like that and did that inform your work at all i grew up watching all that stuff mm -hmm. so you know there's a place in my heart for that stuff and a place in my writing for it too i mean you want to you want to sort of have these uh amazing battles between the top two or three creatures and see which one wins and and uh you know the uh purgatory will set up for that to a certain extent okay um you know the, the what's lingering in my mind at this point in developing the plot line for the story is whether i want um luna to face off against the pantalasa queen mm. And uh, I don't think that really works. Uh, first, I would like it to work, but the timeline is too, uh, it doesn't really work because Luna's not that big yet. And uh, the second reason it doesn't work is because that sort of repeats the plot line of Hell's Aquarium. And I don't want to, and I don't want to do that. Yeah. Um. When we first started, uh, you mentioned, um, you know, when you first started 
getting to work on the Meg, you you did envision it as something that could become a movie, and obviously, you know, it has become a successful film, and, you know, you've even said, you know, you're hoping that it gets some sequels, um, but you, you do have a, a body of work, um, and like any writer, I'm imagining you're very open to anything being adapted into a movie or TV series. Um, if, if you could maybe choose, uh, you know, something that wasn't a, a Meg sequel of yours to be adapted into a, a film or a TV series, um, what, what's the one that you would want to see adapted the most? Well, I think The Lock would probably be the second one, and that's, that's being worked on right now. They're, they're working on a script. They'll have an option that one as well. She actually optioned The Lock for me before she optioned Meg. So it's, it's uh, been out there for a while. Um, but with Meg movie happening, then this ups the ante on The Lock. Um, the, uh, I'm working on a script for Dog Training the American Male, which is a comedy that I wrote that I think would make a great movie as well. And, uh, but I think, um, if you were to ask me one other story that, uh, I would really like to see adapted into a, a big screen event, uh, I think the Omega project is very cool. And I, I think I'd like to see that one. Okay, cool. Um, Josh, you, uh, uh, I think I am going to pass the mic over to you. So, all right, uh, these are, this is actually going to be the last research question I have, Steve. Uh, so after this, it's going to be pretty science, um, not so much science, actually. <laughs> uh, this is an easy one. Concerning your most uh, recent book, Generations, uh, did you do any additional research for your showdown between the Meg and Leviathan, or specifically research into Leviathan, Miles Villiers? Most of that had come when I wrote Night Stalker's uh, the the whale has a bigger part in Night Stalkers than it really does in Generations. Um, but it is an amazing creature and probably the closest thing to uh, giving Meg a battle that's out there. Okay, cool. Uh, like, what about it did you find super interesting as far as, like, the creature? Well, it had the biggest teeth of any predator and it was <laughs> essentially um, had a bite that was more like a killer whale than a, than a sperm whale, making it a lot more dangerous. Um, they weren't as big as Megalodon, but they were around at the same time period. Uh, Myosin. So <laughs> nice. I thought that played into the storyline pretty well. Nice. And then uh, my second question is, uh, the last time that we interviewed, um, a lot of us got to compare our Megalodon teeth uh, so just to carry on on that, do you do you have a large collection of megalodon teeth? Not large, but I do have some pretty good specimens. I have one that's a bottom tooth that's very large, so uh, that's my prized tooth. <laughs> How big is that tooth? It's about six and a quarter inches, maybe. Wow, little. that's pretty good. <laughs> that's a pretty good tooth. And then uh, the last question was actually a question that you had proposed to us the last time. Uh, and I'm just going to circle it back to you, but I'm also going to answer your question. Uh, you asked us what additional prehistoric fauna would we like to see written about in your future books? Um, do you have a specific fauna that you're looking to include in the next book? 
Not yet, but uh, I will throw that question back at you guys. <laughs> well, I think my answer last time was uh, a swarm of mega piranha. That was my definite answer. I'm still going to stick with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> and then I can pass the mic around to everybody else if they also want to answer the question. I had mentioned the uh, giant newt salamander type creature, Kulasukas. So I'll stick with that one, too. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> awesome. What about you, Greg? What's your favorite? Uh, after having some time to think about it, another giant Pliosaurus species, the one that was nicknamed Predator X, Pliosaurus, whichever uh, genus Predator X was. I, uh, well, actually, I don't really have much else. A lot of the questions I had submitted have already been answered in one form or another. I think if we're all wrapped up, I'll ask a follow-up just question. So, uh, Steve, uh, you mentioned that the next book you have that you want to see adapted for a film is a comedy. Um, are you talking about a rom-com, or is it a specific type of comedy? Yeah, I'd say it was a rom-com. <laughs> so, will we be looking at Meg the rom-com? Is that what we're looking at? <laughs> no, it's called Dog Training the American Male. It was written under a, um, uh, a, a pen name... L.A. Knight. Okay, cool. Do you have any other books under that pen name? No, that's the only one so far. Okay. I had a good question from artist Gershom Wetzel. I would like to relate, relate to you uh, real quick. He wants to know, how do how can people like him, for example, end up as uh, characters in your books, like the Meg series, for example? Well, the first step is to sign up for my free newsletter at stevealton.com because that's where I announce it all. And then uh, before every book, I, I'll post the contest and uh, the winners will become characters in the next book. So all I got to do is sign up for the newsletter and just go from there? <laughs> that's pretty much it. Hmm. So yeah. simple. Okay. And this is a fourth question he also wanted to relate to. His uh, question to you is, is there a favorite moment up until the end of Meg Nightstalkers, no generation spoilers, that you'd like to see artist Gershom Wetzel illustrate? Um, I don't know. That's hard for me to say because I'm not familiar with his work. I'll send you uh, some of his uh, work in a follow-up email after the show. Okay. Yeah, he's a really, really phenomenal artist. And then one more thing. Do you have any tips and advice for anybody that's looking to get into writing I think the tip that I usually say is don't write about what you know write about what you like to read and then do the research I see yep that's something I just saw in an interview you uh, just did okay well uh, I think if yeah if we're ready to wrap up I think um, well the Meg movie is out uh, Meg Generations the book uh, is out and Purgatory is, is coming soon but yeah I think um, Steve is there anything else that you want to plug uh, any appearances workshops or just any other any other things you have going on that we can look forward to and check out and tell people to, to, to seek out well, on October 1st at midnight, East Coast time, I'm going to release, the, I'm going to open uh, orders for the pre-sale of the lock in a new hardback edition, which, thanks to you guys, you have inspired me to dig out the book that I work with with Bill McDonald, uh, The Science Behind the Lock, This Monster, and that will be a bonus material, 30-page uh, bonus material at the end of the book. 
And while we were sitting here, I found the book in my archives, and so I am putting that together. Awesome. That's cool. Nice. I'm, I'm glad that uh, we, we helped inspire you to do that, Steve. <laughs> you guys did. Wow, that is an honor, to say the least. <laughs> Have any uh, final things you'd like to say to uh, to our audience that will be uh, watching this, Steve? I uh, just appreciate you listening in, and, and uh, you can go to stevealton.com and email me if you want, and uh, take a look at my other work. But anyhow, as the uh, showrunner of this podcast, I'd like to say thank you so much for coming on tonight, Steve. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Appreciate you guys. Thanks a lot, Steve. Yeah, especially coming back to do it a second time. Yeah, that, thanks for your understanding. <laughs> <laughs> You're a very patient man. <laughs> yeah. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Yeah. Good night. Keep your way, Chris, on the way out. Go Eagles. <laughs> Go Eagles. This has been Prehistory A Traveler's Guide. I have been your host, Greg Nevin. Have a good night and good luck, everybody. <laughs>